We are currently in the middle of a sermon series titled, The Advent of I Am, which is aimed at examining the seven I Am statements of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. If you're not familiar with those statements, they are as follows. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Depending upon your church background, you may be wondering, what is Advent? Perhaps you are thinking, I've heard of it, but I haven't really interacted with it before. Well, the word Advent has three uses. First, the simple definition of the word means the coming or arrival of something or someone that is important or worthy of note. And so, for example, we can speak of the advent of a king or the advent of an important piece of legislation. Second, there is a liturgical use of the word advent, which refers to the sacred period preceding Christmas, observed by many Christians as a season of prayer, fasting, and penitence. And the official church holiday of Advent begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, which is today. And that is why we included the lighting of Advent candles in our service this morning. The third use is a theological reference which represents the coming of Jesus in the Incarnation. So when pastors and theologians speak of the Advent, we are talking about the Incarnation of Jesus, the Eternal, second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son, taking on human flesh and becoming the god And throughout this sermon series, I plan to employ all three uses of the word. For example, here at All Saints Church, we observe Advent and consider this time in the church calendar to be of great significance in the formation of our collective and personal faith. Also, the sermon series for this Advent season is focusing on the 7 I Am statements of Jesus in light of his coming into the world through the Incarnation. And... I hope these ideas are evident even in the title, The Advent of I Am. In other words, the coming or the arrival of I Am. And so if you are new to Advent, I hope that this is a helpful explanation of what we are celebrating as we talk about Advent, what we're participating in. This morning's text is from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And today we will consider the statement, I am the light of the world. And as I preach, I want to answer two questions. Number one, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the light of the world? And then number two, I want to answer the question, how are you and I to respond to this self-revelation of Jesus? So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12, and I'm going to read the text and then pray.
John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the significance and importance of Jesus' words in John chapter 8. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to rightly understand them and then live in light of them. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 may not appear in the version of the English Bible that you hold in your hand this morning. Alternatively, it may be incorporated by the use of a footnote or included somewhere else in your Bible, like the Gospel of Luke. And that is because these 11 verses represent what biblical scholars refer to as a textual variant. In the earliest Greek manuscripts that are available to us today that we can study, these 11 verses are absent. However, they do appear in later New Testament manuscripts. Thus, there is a variation or difference between the texts, and hence the term textual variant. Currently, there are known to be 5,800 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, along with tens of thousands of Latin, Coptic, and Syriac ancient manuscripts. In total, it is estimated that there are roughly 25,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts available to us today. And thanks to the diligent work of archaeologists, that number keeps increasing. Now, with 25,000 New Testament manuscripts produced from various geographical locations, copied at different times from different people, and generated with different methods, it is understandable that there would be textual variants. However, it is important to note that the variations are not significant, as common alterations include the deletion, rearrangement, repetition, or replacement of one or more words in a sentence. And so none of these variations change the theology or the doctrine of Christianity. 
And believe it or not, these textual variants should actually give you confidence in the trustworthiness of the English Bible that you hold in your hand this morning. You see, with all the attention that has been given to the Bible by textual critics, the New Testament has actually proven a 99% accuracy among all the Greek New Testament manuscripts. Given that the New Testament manuscripts were copied in different regions at different times, again, there is a high possibility for variation and or error, yet the New Testament boasts of exceptionally high continuity and accuracy. Compared to all other ancient texts, the Bible is the most accurate. Furthermore, compared to all other ancient texts, the Bible has the most well-known, or at least known, manuscripts. And as I said, when we only consider the Greek manuscripts, the New Testament has 5,800 of them. And the earliest scripts we have date within 100 years of when the original documents were written. And for me, that sounds impressive. Maybe for you, 100 years doesn't sound so impressive. But compare it to Homer's Iliad. There are 543 copies of the Iliad. And the earliest manuscript that is known happens to have been produced 500 years after the original work. And among those 543 manuscripts, textual critics have determined a 95% accuracy among those manuscripts. So with that, does anyone really question the validity and accuracy of the Iliad? Do students hold Homer's words in their hands and ponder, is this really what was said? No. No one questions the accuracy of Homer. And yet in the terms of volume, accuracy, and dating... The Iliad's ancient manuscripts pale in comparison to those of the New Testament. Take another example. How about Aristotle? There are known to be 49 ancient manuscripts of Aristotle's work. And the earliest manuscript that is available was copied 1,400 years after the original was written. The famous philosopher lived during the classical period in ancient Greece from 382 to 322 B.C. And the earliest manuscript we have of Aristotle is from 1100 A.D. That's the time of the Crusades. And again, have you ever heard anyone question the validity of Aristotle? No. And again, the New Testament manuscripts are overwhelmingly more impressive. A massive amount of volume. 99% accuracy among all those thousands of texts. And we have documents as close as 100 years from the original date of writing. So then, the first reason why I pointed this textual variant out to you this morning is really just to bolster your confidence in the Bible. There's no other ancient text like it, no other ancient text that boasts of that level of accuracy in volume. You can have all the confidence in the world that the English translation that you have is accurate and trustworthy. Furthermore, you can trust that God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to preserve his holy word for his people. You can 
trust and know that God has preserved his word for you. The second reason I point this out, the textual variant, is to acknowledge that there is some debate among biblical scholars on whether these 11 verses should be included in John's gospel or even included in the New Testament at all. And so, for example, the prolific New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, believes that this account should not be included anywhere in the Bible. But in contrast, the well-known pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul stated that not only did he believe this passage to be apostolic, but he was convinced it should be in the pages of Scripture and was happy to consider it a writing of John. And so for the sake of clarity... This morning, I am operating with the presupposition that this account is authentic, it is apostolic, and should be part of John's gospel. And the reason for my position is found in the continuity that these 11 verses bring to the context of John chapter 8, which I hope to demonstrate momentarily. And just one last point of clarification the I am statement recorded in verse 12 is not in question. Verse 12 appears in both the early and later manuscripts. And what Jesus had to say about himself is accepted. What stands in question is simply the account of the woman accused of adultery. But again, I hope to demonstrate why I am treating it as the very word of God this morning. With all that being said... Let's look again at verse 12 and consider what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the light of the world. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As we considered last week, I mentioned that there was a 400-year period between the close of the Old Testament and the advent of Jesus. Bible teachers refer to this as the intertestamental period. Some have referred to this as the silent age because this was a 400-year time in which God did not communicate with his people through the prophetic office. Thus, the rise of rabbinical teaching came into vogue, and with it, all sorts of extra-biblical law that left God's people feeling burdened and heavy-laden, as well as hungry and thirsty for true righteousness. And the term silent age can create in our minds the wrong impression that these 400 years were peaceful and uneventful. When in reality, during this time, Palestine was anything but tranquil and quiet. And we will discuss this in greater detail in the weeks to come. But during this time, there was much political upheaval. The political structure changed routinely. Also, this period was filled with great turmoil in terms of war leading up to the advent of Christ, the biblical authors describe the world that they live in as dark. And in biblical terms, darkness is used as a metaphor to communicate the idea of wickedness and ignorance toward God, which results 
in divine judgment and wrath. So the people of Israel experienced the weightiness of spiritual darkness because of sin's bondage and power over them. Darkness is a picture of sin's ability to enslave people to unholy acts like anger, malice, bitterness, drunkenness, hatred, lust, deceit, and sexual immorality. Darkness is also an image of death, which in fact is the penalty for sin. And one of the best descriptions of the era leading up to the advent of Christ is actually found in the lyrics of the famous Christmas carol, O Holy Night. You're familiar with these words. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 22 articulates the same idea by saying this, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so it is with this backdrop that Jesus steps onto the scene in the advent of his early ministry and states I am the light of the world. In this statement, Jesus communicates that he is the antithesis to the darkness of wickedness. He is the light that dispels the enslaving dark power of sin. He is the light that pushes back the darkness of anger, malice, bitterness, drunkenness, hatred, lust, deceit, and sexual immorality. And this point is emphasized in the second clause of his statement when he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. With this, there are two ways in which one follows Jesus out of the darkness and into the light. And so I want to consider these two things. The first is in justification by grace through faith. We saw this last week in John chapter 6 when Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, and that is the same idea as following, and believes in me will have eternal life. Faith is the first way in which one follows Jesus out of darkness and into the light. As justification by faith dismantles the penalty and consequences of sin, which is death. When one comes to Jesus in faith, God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus on behalf of that individual. Sin no longer can take control over that person's destiny. Death loses its sting and power over the person who comes to Christ and believes in him. Forensically and positionally, sin loses its dark hold on those who are in Christ by grace through faith. The second way that one follows Jesus out of the darkness and into the light is in sanctification. As one obeys the commands of Jesus and puts into practice the principles that he teaches, 
there is a very practical moving away from the darkness and moving away from sin's power and moving into the light of functional righteousness. Jesus elaborates this further later in John chapter 8 by stating the following in verses 33 through 36. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. As the light of the world, Jesus not only offers freedom from the penalty of sin, which is death, but he also offers transformation, freedom from the dark control of sin, freedom from the addictive power of sin. And the person who follows Jesus not only knows the light of life in a spiritual sense, receiving forgiveness of sin and experiencing acceptance with God by justification, but they also encounter the light of life in their day-to-day experiences being freed from the control of sin. You see, the principles and commands of Jesus are given to us for our own use and benefit. They aren't spiritual theories or ideas for us to only ponder. Instead, they are theological prescriptions for us to practice so that we might glorify God, love our neighbor, and experience joy in this life. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus provides a principle in order that we might experience freedom from lust and pornography. He says the following, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In principle, Jesus is saying, if you are under the cruel control of pornography, if you are a slave to lust, you must cut things off and cut things out. And practically, that looks like switching to a flip phone with no internet connection, or getting rid of your laptop and replacing it with a desktop that sits in a common area of your home. Or perhaps it looks like investing in a web browsing tracking program and then working with an accountability partner. Because you see, obedience to the practical commands of Jesus actually leads one out from sin's cruel bondage and into joy and freedom of functional righteousness. Doing the very commands and principles of Jesus are not just theological ideas. They are the means and the way out of sin's bondage. Thus, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Therefore, when Jesus steps onto the scene and says, I am the light of the world, What he means is that he is the source of light and righteousness 
that dispels the darkness and power of sin in our lives. And he does that both forensically by justification and he does that functionally through our sanctification as we obey his commands. And this is precisely why I believe verses 1 through 11 belong here in John chapter 8. Because the woman accused of adultery serves as an illustration of someone moving from darkness to light. Moving from the control of sin to the freedom of righteousness. This woman is introduced into the narrative as a reprobate, living under the power of sin. But by the end of the account, we are left to believe that she is justified and living righteously. There are two important things to see here in these first 11 verses. First, she presents as someone operating with faith in Jesus as she addresses him in verse 11 as Lord. And in John's gospel, this is the same way that the disciples address Jesus. And this should be seen and understood in contrast with how the scribes and Pharisees address Jesus in verse 4 by simply calling him teacher. And not only does she present as a person operating with faith, but the second point of importance is that Jesus gives her a command to obey by saying, go, and from now on, sin no more. This exchange demonstrates the pattern of following Jesus into the light of righteousness and no longer walking in the darkness of sin by capturing both elements, faith unto justification and obedience unto sanctification. And so this is why I believe the text belongs here. This woman illustrates the very thing that Jesus talks about in verse 12, dispelling the darkness by faith and removing the control of sin's darkness by obedience in sanctification. But with that, there are a few points that need to be made concerning this account of the woman accused of adultery. Because far too often people ignorantly point to this passage as a proof text to suggest that Jesus either disobeyed the moral law of God or at least had no regard for it or was opposed to it. And then they use this erroneous presupposition to justify sin in their own life. And quite frankly, I don't want my sermon to be used as a justification for disobeying God's law. So I've got to make some qualifying points. First and foremost, we need to establish the fact that in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus is recorded as saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. First point is this. Jesus did not violate the law of God. And he had a high view of God's law. In fact, he knew no sin, as the Apostle Paul teaches us. The next point we need to acknowledge is the motivation for the accusations made against the woman. In verse 6, the text tells us 
they, that being the scribes and Pharisees, said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. The motivation here is important. The scribes and Pharisees were not interested in honoring God's law, but instead they were seeking to trap Jesus. And the actions of the scribes and Pharisees then cause us to logically consider and ask the question, was this woman even guilty to begin with? If all they were after was trying to trap Jesus. And if not for Jesus' command to go and sin no more, I would assume that she was innocent of the charges. However, seeing that Jesus commands repentance and obedience suggests that she was in fact an adulteress. And it's at this point, people like to jump in and say, see, she was an adulteress, and Jesus didn't care what the law of God said about the penalty of adultery. Therefore, Jesus didn't care about the law, or Jesus was opposed to the law, and we should have nothing to do with the law of God. And this argument has all sorts of flaws. First, the woman was accused of adultery, but she was never condemned of adultery. And those are two very distinct and very important differences that the text displays to us. There was an accusation, but she was never condemned. The accusation did not come to bear. Second, the old covenant law did allow for repentance. And that is why the sacrificial system was in place. It provided atonement for the sins of the people. Furthermore, we see repentance of sin in the Old Testament in possibly no greater form than when David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. Both of his sins were punishable by death. However, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we are informed that God accepted David's repentance and his consequent worship, which was most likely involving some sort of sacrifice unto God. And thus, in the same way that God accepted David's repentance, God was able to recognize this woman's repentance and accept hers too. And just as David may have made sacrifices, so this woman could have done the same thing. But more importantly, David's sins were ultimately and truly atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the same is true for this woman. And that's what makes her story fit so well with verse 12. This woman was justified of adultery by faith in Jesus Christ, which was accomplished through his death and resurrection. Subsequently, she experienced freedom from sin, both forensically as Jesus forgives her, and functionally as we are to are assume that she obeyed the commands of Christ and did not sin. She experienced freedom from the penalty of sin. She experienced freedom from death, and she experienced freedom from the enslaving power of sin. Again, as Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he states that he is the source of light and righteousness which dispels the darkness and power of sin over our lives. So, that answers the first question. 
What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the light of the world? In closing, let's consider the second question. How are we to respond to Jesus in light of his self-revelation as the light of the world? This Advent season, you may be feeling the darkness of sin in your own life. Perhaps you feel entrapped or enslaved. If that's you, then what you are to do in light of Jesus' self-revelation is to escape sin's dark control and penalty, which is death, and follow Jesus into the light of righteousness by faith. This looks like owning your sin, acknowledging that you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath, and then believing in and trusting that Jesus' sinless life, his vicarious death, and his bodily resurrection are the means of your acceptance and forgiveness with God. St. John said this in his first epistle. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This morning, you may feel stuck in your sanctification. Maybe you're sensing a lack of progress in personal holiness. You keep returning to the same old sins. As the book of Proverbs tells us, you are like a dog returning to your vomit. If that's you, then you need to know that following Jesus into the light also looks like obeying his teachings and commands. The teaching and commands are not a means of our justification. They're not there for you to do them so that you will please God and receive his forgiveness. No, the teachings and commands of Jesus are there to lead you functionally and practically out of sin's control. Putting into practice the principles and precepts of God's word is the functional way to walk in the light and stay out of the darkness. That is the way to functionally practice righteousness. This morning, if you are tired of being a slave to alcohol or controlled by your anger or ruled by pornography, then I say to you, follow Jesus into the freedom of the light by putting into practice his principles and commands. And if that sounds overwhelming to you, like you can't do that by yourself, then you probably have a good sense of self-awareness because you're right. In your own strength, you can't obey God's commands. However, when you and I come to Jesus in faith, we are filled with the Holy Spirit who does give us strength to obey and follow Jesus. Also, 
God, in his kindness, gives us the practical aid of brothers and sisters in Christ to help us put to death the deeds of the flesh. He gives us people to hold us accountable and to encourage us. He gives us brothers and sisters to pray for us and walk with us. Often Christians can live in the theoretical, over-spiritualized construct of their minds and miss the practical nuances of living life in Christ. And so, for example, I would bet that all of us in this room believe that it is God who provides our daily bread for us. But how many of us stop and consider the practical means by which we receive God's provisions? How often do we think of our employer or our boss or our job who happens to be those practical means of God's daily provision? And the same thing is true in our sanctification. We can over-spiritualize. We can live in the theoretical, and sometimes Christians wait for a miraculous moment in which God just will instantly remove all of their sinful behaviors and habits. When in reality, God calls us to very practical, ordinary, daily disciplines by which we over time become mature, immovable, and steadfast in righteousness. And so, God gives us brothers and sisters in Christ to help us stay committed to daily disciplines through encouragement and accountability and sometimes even providing us with consequences. Yes, sometimes we do need consequences. And this may look like a brother or sister in Christ making sure we put money into a jar every time we lose self-control and lash out at the bad drivers on Route 30. Or maybe this looks like taking our cell phone away for three days if we look at porn. Or perhaps it's making sure we only have one beer and not two, just to make sure that we don't become a slave to alcohol. There are many ways we can implement this idea of encouragement and accountability. But the point is this. Our brothers and sisters in Christ should be and should serve as a practical means by which we develop and stick to daily disciplines that follow Jesus' principles and commands so that we can make our way out of darkness and into the light, following the light of the world. With that, the only way that we can have fruitful accountability here at All Saints Church where you can be totally honest and totally transparent about your sin is if there is a true and mutual understanding of the gospel. A mutual understanding of the gospel that says, I know that you are a sinner in needs of God's grace because I am one too. With all that being said, dear saints, I pray that this Advent season, you would trust and follow Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who is the source of light and righteousness, which dispels the darkness and power of sin over our lives. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.